This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Amander here, and we are very excited to share this next Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, Programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeFest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chiveret for their top-notch production skills that make Cardinerds Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Natalie, take it away. <laughs> We here at Cardio Nerds have pulled in some world-renowned experts to help us round on challenging and nuanced clinical cases that are a little bit outside of the guidelines. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our fellow in training guest today, Jenna Skoronsky from UPMC. She is interested in both cardio obstetrics and heart failure, making her the perfect fellow to be hosting and presenting our cases today. So Jenna, why don't you take it away? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Natalie. Well, first, if you don't mind, I'm going to introduce Dr. Walsh. Dr. Walsh is a faculty expert, and she completed medical school at the University of Minnesota before moving to Texas to train at University of Texas Southwestern for a residency. She completed her cardiology fellowship at Washington University of St. Louis. She's currently the medical director of heart failure and cardiac transplant at Ascension St. Vincent Heart Center. In addition to being the medical director of Ascension St. Vincent Cardiovascular Research Institute, she has a particular interest and expertise in cardiovascular disease in women, which we love here. And Dr. Walsh is the deputy editor of Jack Case Reports, an editorial consultant for Jack Heart Failure, and an associate editor of the Journal of Cardiac Failure, in addition to being the prior president of both the Indiana chapter and national president of ACC. Dr. Walsh, thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So... Let's round. We're going to see two patients today. For our first case, we have a 31-year-old G1P1 female with a history of likely peripartum cardiomyopathy who's presenting for preconception counseling. So her prior pregnancy was at the age of 27. She received all of her care at an outside hospital, and she had an uneventful prenatal course with a spontaneous vaginal delivery at 37 weeks and two days. Two weeks postpartum, she was readmitted with dyspnea or thapnean and progressive worsening of peripheral edema. Her echo at that time reported an LVEF of 30 to 35% and LVIDD at 5.1 centimeters, diffuse LV hypokinesis, RV with mild dilatation and normal systolic function, mild MR and TR, and a PASP of 41 milliliters of mercury with indeterminate diastolic dysfunction. Records indicate that her vital signs were stable throughout her admission. She was treated with IV diuresis and discharged on Lasix 20 milligrams and metoprolol 6 and 825 milligrams daily with plans for post follow-up. 
He had one follow-up visit with a cardiologist six months postpartum, at which time the late six was weaned off. Today, she reports no subsequent episodes of dyspnea, orthopnea, or lower extremity edema. And she walks daily, participates in Zumba classes one to two times per week. She continues her metoprolol without issue. And she's interested in having another child. So she was referred to you for discussion. You order a repeat TTE, at which time her LVEF is 45 to 50% with no segmental wall abnormalities. She has an LVS D3.2 centimeters and an LVEDB at 5 centimeters. She has a normal LA, normal RV size and function, and her PSP at this time is 22 milliliters of mercury with no significant valvular disease. So, Dr. Walsh, how would you counsel this patient? I think there's two most important points. One, this is a patient who was undertreated when she first presented. She likely did have peripartum cardiomyopathy. That's the most likely diagnosis, although certainly she could have a genetic basis as well. And so she was treated only with diuretics and a beta blocker when, in fact, she should have received full-dose GDMT that she could tolerate. If she was interested in breastfeeding, we would have left off the ARNI for now and used ACE inhibitor. And SGLT2 inhibitors, as of now, have not really been used for women who are breastfeeding, so we'd probably leave that off. But so let's just acknowledge that she was undertreated both from the standpoint of guideline-directed medical therapy, but also in follow-up. She should have been seen frequently and reevaluated. So what are her risks of pregnancy? And the most important point I'll make is that this is a shared decision-making situation wherein we don't instruct patients or tell them what to do. We share our expertise with them and elicit their values and preferences. The biggest concern about this presentation, now that we're seeing her on rounds with us in our institution, is her persistent left ventricular systolic dysfunction. That portends a increased risk of recurrent peripartum cardiomyopathy for this woman. We know that about a third of women do have persistent left ventricular systolic dysfunction, and this is the group that faces the biggest risk with another pregnancy. This is a discussion I have weekly, if not daily, and it's somewhat easier for women to hear early on after a complex pregnancy and a presentation that puts their life at risk to understand that going forward with another pregnancy is not advisable. But when a year and a half or two years go by, she's feeling well, the question often arises again. So I talk to women about their current status with regard to left ventricular systolic ejection fraction and what risk they would face with another pregnancy. And then women make their own decision about whether they want to take that risk. I will say that I do include in my discussion the fact that I have seen women die with a second pregnancy. And I know that's a framing that I do that really influences the shared decision-making process. But I feel that it's important for women to understand that maternal mortality is significant with repeat pregnancy in this situation. Dr. Walsh, would you do any further testing or is there room for family analysis, genetic analysis? And would any of that change your discussion with the patient? Just as with any dilated cardiomyopathy, women who've had what we assume to be peripartum cardiomyopathy should be offered genetic testing for themselves. And of course, a three-generation family history will help us sort that out a little bit. 
if there's been sudden death or any heart failure in um, the family, that would push us toward thinking more of a genetic etiology. Although the overlap between genetic and peripartum cardiomyopathy is pretty significant. So yes, I think genetic testing, I'm not sure it would uh, alter my uh, discussion with this patient just because of the persistent LV dysfunction. And I would also describe for this patient a full GDMT and in- encourage her to get on that. Dr. Walsh, it would be really helpful if talking a little bit about the degree of LV dysfunction that you're seeing with her and what you would have hoped her to recover to before she becomes pregnant again. Yeah. Important. I think we can get somewhat fooled by almost normal and think, well, that's good. And it is good. It's way better than staying at 20%. But a normal echo is 50 to 55%. And so I've seen a lot of women with this problem through my career. And I have seen the maternal morbidity mortality that happens. And so normal is normal. 45 is, in my mind, it doesn't change what my recommendation is or my discussion is compared to lower than that. Dr. Walsh, have you changed your counseling based on the recent Dobbs decision and the differences in access to abortion that our patients have? Yeah, sadly, I have instantly overnight had to add some other discussion. I uh, live in a state where there's a bill being introduced today. In fact, when I'm done uh, with this recording, I will be going down to the state house. And women in many states have very restricted access to pregnancy termination if they find themselves in a situation that they're pregnant either without planning the pregnancy or even if planned, didn't possibly understand their risk from a cardiovascular standpoint. So one of the things I've added to my discussion is that there is a limitation depending on where you live as to when you can access care if you find yourself pregnant. And so I have intensified my discussion about safe and effective contraception. We've already faced two situations in this past week with women finding themselves unexpectedly pregnant. One was a woman who has both pulmonary hypertension and LV dysfunction. And so, yes, I've changed. And I think it depends on where you live, what you counsel your women and what's available locally. Thank you for that. For this case, this patient decided that she was comfortable with the risks associated with pregnancy, and she became pregnant shortly after her initial consultation with maternal fetal medicine and cardiology. At that time, active medications were metoprolol and prenatal vitamin, and she is now presenting to us in her first trimester for evaluation. So, Dr. Walsh, how would you approach counseling and management at this point? And what should this patient's interdisciplinary team look like throughout her pregnancy? She will need to be followed very closely by both cardiology and maternal fetal medicine. We often see patients on the same day so that the maternal fetal medicine team can discuss. I often tell women it depends on how things go, how frequently they need to be seen, and how often we need to do testing such as repeat echo, or more importantly, is evaluation with physical exam to evaluate for volume overload and et cetera. This is not actually a patient who would do well with telemedicine because physical exam is crucial for these women. Remembering that edema can be normal in pregnancy, tachycardia is normal in pregnancy, but ROWS, PND, and an S3 gallop 
are heart failure. They are not normal pregnancy. So physical exam is important. And I tell women that if volume overload is excessive and we can't manage it with low-dose diuretics, we sometimes need to hospitalize patients and monitor them throughout the pregnancy that way. And then when it gets to delivery, most women can proceed with vaginal delivery unless, of course, they have obstetric indications like possibly a previous C-section. But obstetric indications usually drive which type of delivery. And then timing of delivery is based a lot on how the woman is doing, both from a fetal growth standpoint and also has she had worsening LV dysfunction, symptoms, volume overload. Sometimes we need to move urgently towards delivery in some women. And when you're following these patients throughout their pregnancy, are there specific echo parameters that make you concerned or is it more symptom-based or clinical exam findings that have you concerned or combination of all of those? More a combination. And I am not somebody who repeats echoes a lot because the baby's already in there and it's, <laughs> what else are we going to do? I do think sometimes the MFM team wants more echoes than we do. And uh, certainly immediately postpartum is when I want an echo to see where we are because I'm going to want to change the GDMT at that time. Many women I see weekly just for very quick visit. Not all though. Some people, if they're doing well, if they're weighing themselves daily, watching for symptoms, edema, sudden weight gain, and they know to call, we don't have to have as frequent follow-up. Dr. Wallace, you know, I was just lurking here in the background. Um, But I had a question specifically maybe touching upon pregnancy physiology. And with someone that's on a beta blocker in typical heart failure, they're not undergoing big changes in their underlying physiology over time. But from the first trimester to the second trimester to the third trimester are changes. So I'm wondering how that influences your dosing of medication and specifically things like a beta blocker. That's a great question. So the peak blood volume in pregnancy is smack dab in the second trimester. By that time, women double their blood volume, and we've seen the heart rate rise already. So beta blocker dosing in pregnancy really is, again, based on a lot. It's very individualized, depends on how tachycardic the patient is and how she's tolerating it. But this patient, I would have had on max dose, max dose beta blocker at the beginning, so I, if tolerated. So it probably wouldn't change. But that is the time when we start to get into trouble, middle of the second trimester. It's also, by the way, for those women who have underlying undiagnosed cardiomyopathy, that is the time that we generally see women present with volume overload and symptoms of heart failure in that to some extent helps us distinguish whether this is peripartum versus other causes of heart failure. Dr. Walsh, you you touched on this just a bit, but thinking about after this patient were to deliver, if you wouldn't mind talking about your approach to GDMT immediately postpartum and how you're kind of dealing with weight fluctuations that come post-delivery, things like that. So we have a patient in our hospital now, we just had this discussion, different etiology of heart failure, but ended up on ECMO and has successfully decannulated a few days ago and had been pumping or the nurses were helping with that. And we had the, you know, tough conversation of full GDMT with Valsartan-Cubitril, beta blocker, SGLT2 inhibitor, aldo inhibitor versus her wanting to go home and uh, breastfeed. And this patient made the choice of going with full GDMT. So I think depending on how ill 
the patient is after delivery. That's another shared decision-making conversation we have. And everybody's different. If she's really very, very interested in breastfeeding, then beta blocker and ACE inhibitor would be what we would. But again, it's a woman's decision. Wonderful. I think we can move on to the next case. So for case two, this is a 32-year-old female. She's a G4P2022 with a history of polysubstance use disorder who presents as a transfer from an outside hospital. We'll stop day zero from an emergency section at 37 weeks in cardiogenic shock. So she presented to an outside hospital for cough, dyspnea, and abdominal pain. She had a UDS that was positive for methamphetamines. And while there, she went into an SVT that was treated with metoprolol. That was complicated by fetal decelerations. In regards to her social history, it's significant for current one-pack-per-day tobacco use. She has an active polysubstance use disorder. She's currently undomiciled, and she does not have a support person at this time. The TTE at the outside hospital was read as an LVEF for 15 to 20%. Her LVEDP was 6.3 centimeters with diffuse severe hypokinesis. RV was normal-sized. TAPSI was 1.4, and mild to moderate MR was present. Unfortunately, her fetal decelerations continued, and she underwent an emergency section, during which time a right heart cath was performed. At that time, her RA was 6, PA was 25 over 10, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 10, cardiac output and index by thick was 3.9 and 2.1, and her PA sat was 53%. She was transferred to a higher level of care after her C-section, and on presentation, she had a leukocytosis of 32,000 a lactate of 1.2, and a high-sensitivity troponin of 50. On post-op day one, she had a 12-beat run of NSVT, followed by an SVT with rates of 210. She was treated with adenosine at that time. And on repeat echo, she was found to have an IVC thrombus, and her LVEF remained 15%. And we have some TTE images for you to review. The TTE is showing a fairly severely dilated LV with very poor systolic function in both the parasternal and the apical views, and an RV that looks to be about normal size. Agree. So, Dr. Walsh, what do you think the etiology of her cardiomyopathy is? So, we don't know is the answer. Could it be peripartum? The timing's right for that. Could it be tachycardia-induced? Absolutely, because this woman's SBT is extremely fast. We don't know how long ago she started having this SVT. And this could be tachycardia mediated. It most certainly can be toxicity mediated based on the documented polysubstance use. And we can never rule out whether there's a familial dilated cardiomyopathy unless we get the history. So always remember that tachycardia mediated myopathy is reversible. Even when this far down the road with an LV as large as hers, if SVT had been present for weeks to months, that alone could dilate this ventricle. And of course, now that she's in extremis, if the um, substance use has precipitated this or added to it, maybe the counseling and withdrawal of those substances will help her. So when we think about what are we going to do for this patient, we have to think, is there anything reversible? And going with that, typically the peripartum cardiomyopathy will be a diagnosis of exclusion. And when do you feel confident in this diagnosis here. You can't really be truly confident in any, as you said, but do you ever consider bromocryptine? Does it ever change your management if that's what you're considering as the etiology, especially in this critical 
illness stage? Does it matter at all? I would be very hesitant to give bromocryptine to this patient. She's clearly got other causes. And so the risk benefit doesn't really weigh, I think, toward it in this case. Also, the data is not robust on bromocryptine. In fact, we are joining, along with others, a uh, randomized trial of bromocryptine in pericardium cardiomyopathy. So it definitely would not use in this particular case. And also based on the data, I personally have never prescribed it for peripartum patients. Thank you. I think that we can um, keep moving with this case. So during her hospitalization, she progressed to a sky stage E shock refractory to inotropes with AKI secondary to ATN. One of her many right heart casts, this one from Miller note 0.5 and epinephrine 0.02, had an RA of 18, an RV of 47 over 18, a PA of 50 over 32 with a mean of 40, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 25, a thick cardiac output and index of 3.2 and 1.7, with a PA saturation of 41. At that time, an Impella 5.5 was placed for additional support. Her AKI resolved, and she was maintained on inotropes, vasopressors, and Impella running at P7 with an inability to wean. There was concern for infection given her persistent daily fevers she was having, However, an extensive infectious workup was negative after 10 days. So, Dr. Walsh, what are your thoughts of next steps here and how would you approach this case? This is a very rough case. Firstly, uh, remember when she had this crash C-section? It said something about she had a right heart cath first. You would never do that, okay? You don't need a swan in. If the baby's deselling, you have to get the baby out. Don't pause to get the swan in just to get the baby out. Number two, once she got to our institution that we're rounding, I would hope she's not getting repeated right heart casts. I hope she has a swan in place and that is helping us manage the patient. You did have a swan in place. Okay, yeah. good. So this is tough and the, these are the tough situations that we face daily. You could have an attending from several different institutions answer this differently, but I'm going to answer it. We've had a lot of discussions at our institution about this type of patient. And at our institution, we would not put her on ECMO because we would not see a strategy for durable support for her based on her history. That is true. At some place, other people say, well, we're going to go forward with, uh, she may on ECMO improve, et cetera, et cetera, and then maybe we can better. We would not view this patient that way because of her ongoing substance use. You said that there was a continued concern for infection, but all the cultures had been negative. So I think we would likely recommend continued impella support with inotropic support as well and reattempt a wean because I don't think would see a way to durable support for this individual at this time. If we could get her out of shock and on GDMT and she had a turnaround in her life, we might reconsider that. And Dr. Wash, I think for me, the interesting part of this case, in addition to the hemodynamics, is the social situation. So when you're Approaching a patient who has an active substance use disorder, who's undomiciled, who doesn't have as much support and literally had a baby the day that she presented. Are you thinking about her options the minute she hits the door? What are we going to offer her? How do you factor all of those things into that decision? Well, all of the factors that you've mentioned make her a very high-risk patient for doing well long-term on durable support with an LVAD. And it's not a large literature, but this has been demonstrated in the literature specifically with regard to substance abuse. So 
for her, each of these is piling up. Although as far as being a person who is unhoused, that can be dealt with in certain ways. We can get people on Medicaid and get them Section 8 housing and all kinds of things. I think the driver of this patient's uh, concerns for doing well long-term on a durable LVAD is her substance use. This patient isn't eligible yet for a durable LVAD. She needs a lot more tuning. It's very good that her right ventricle looks good. Just as a follow-up question, when you're making these decisions, especially for a patient who is not showing any improvement at this one-week mark and making really long-term decisions in addition to short-term decisions, is there any additional workup that would help to triage whether she would be more likely to recover, whether she would be a good candidate for any of these therapies with the social situation aside? Is there anything else you would do despite her critical illness just to get a little bit more data? I think most of the data we would be assessing on an ongoing fashion. Does she have SVT? You know, are there things we can do? Ablation. We've taken people to the EP lab on ECMO to have ablations done. And so I think just the information that you're getting in real time in the cardiothoracic unit is probably all we need. Frequent echoes help us. A swan in place. I'm not sure that any kind of genetic testing in this case would help us make this relatively urgent decision. And by the way, we have our palliative care consult team see patients along with us in this type of patient in particular. Thank you. So her her very extensive infectious workup was negative despite her fevers. And unfortunately, her cardiogenic shock progressed with dropping SVO2s despite of PELF by 5, norepinephrine, epinephrine, melanone, and dobutamine. Decision was made to proceed to ECMO emergently for bridge to LZAD two days later. And the patient was discharged with plans for close outpatient follow-up. I just wanted to ask another question here. So let's say if we separate this patient and another patient, maybe with a better social support system and without polysubstance abuse, who comes in presenting similarly. When you're using MCS for, let's say, peripartum cardiomyopathy, when do you give it as a bridge to recovery? Or how long do you give it for a bridge to recovery? Presuming that peripartum cardiomyopathy will recover in many patients versus a bridge to some type of durable LVAD or transplant. That's a very good question. Yes, peripartum cardiomyopathy patients can recover, but patients who become ill enough with peripartum cardiomyopathy with extremely low ejection fractions, volume overload, and shock that requires LVAD, those ventricles are not the ventricles that generally recover. However, as with any LVAD patient who has dilated myopathy with more of a precipitous presentation, we would be very aggressive in that patient with doing frequent echo evaluation to see about ventricular recovery and then ramp studies of the LVAD and occlusion studies in the cath lab with a swan in to see if we have true recovery before we would consider explanting the VAD. But we do see it happens for other patients with dilated cardiomyopathy. And so for those patients, you really want to move toward thinking about that early with a strategy for either weaning, explanting, or 
possibly transplant. And I, I want to add one other thing here with the current allocation system for cardiac transplantation. A lot of programs are looking at a patient like you're describing, again, without the psychosocial situation as becoming ill enough to need an LVAD should they be supported, say, with balloon pump or other temporary MCS to transplant. So these are discussions that we have daily. And you spoke a little bit about some members of the team who you think should be there. But when you are making these decisions for these really complex patients, who is on that team? Who works together? And at what point in time do you get certain members of the team involved? Or are you discussing iteratively? Yeah, our selection committee involves social work, nurse coordinators, surgeons, cardiologists, palliative care experts, dietary, social work, pharmacy. And uh, all views are heard. I think for the patient that we just talked about, our social workers and post-bad coordinators would be working extremely hard with this individual. So when we have discussions, all voices are heard, including concerns from members of the team who aren't physicians about what the burden of care may be, et cetera. But our social workers help us by calculating a SIPAT score, helps give us objective data as to how the patient might do. And these are very, very hard decisions to make. And, and I think, by the way, we're seeing more and more and more use of substance, including methamphetamine, that is being used in sort of a casual way. And I've been doing a personal poll of several different institutions to see what they would do with a methamphetamine UDS positive for whom you're considering a destination therapy LVAD. And most people are saying no. So every institution's different. So you're distinguishing from the casual recreational drug use to a substance use disorder and whether or not that really matters. Well, it depends. Again, back to states, it depends what state you live in, whether marijuana use is illicit or not. And is it just like tobacco use in your state? Maybe it is. It's not in mine. <laughs> and is marijuana use different than methamphetamine and cocaine use? And I think we know from the literature that methamphetamine and cocaine use portend a really poor prognosis for bad patients. But um, these are not easy decisions and they're becoming more frequent because the use of substances well, I'll pick methamphetamine is becoming extremely frequent, at least in the population in our state. So interesting. Thank you. I'm interested in terms of the roles that different teams play with patients. And Jenna, if you can speak to this in this case, and Dr. Walsh, in your experience, what specifically did you look to from the maternal fetal medicine folks and what input did they have or things that you learned from that experience in terms of how you would take care of critically ill patients immediately postpartum? Is that something that's important in this case? And what insight can they provide? How do you keep them involved? Well, they're always critically involved at deciding mode of delivery. Well, vaginal delivery in this case would have been impossible. We had a recent, uh, we've recently had two crash C-sections, one in the cardiac unit and one in the emergency department. And the same fellow was on call for you fellows. And, and he told me he now is going into OB because he was on call both times and saw the emergency C-section. <laughs> so we seek their input on preference for medications during pre-birth and then certainly help afterwards. We have ongoing discussions daily with OB or whoever's overseeing the issues with regard to C-section, wound or incision and breast milk coming in, et cetera. And they, they stay on 
until all those questions have been answered. So they're seeing the patients daily too. That was our experience with this patient. You touched on breastfeeding again, and I think we talked a bit about bromocryptine, but just to take a little bit of a step back, maybe from this patient. Well, what concerns me the most about breastfeeding actually is not the particular impact on LV dysfunction, but it's the fact that we don't want the infant to be receiving breast milk, which includes our most powerful guideline-directed medical therapy choices these days. And so I think that's what drives our recommendations to women who have very severe LV dysfunction when they're facing the decision of whether or not they want to pursue breastfeeding. It's another very fraught discussion, though, for women who have gone along in pregnancy, done fine, and suddenly find themselves gravely ill. And it's just another thing that they're experiencing a loss about. And in particular, by the way, we haven't talked about fetal loss in this situation, but that is a not uncommon outcome for women who have peripartum cardiomyopathy and present in extremis as this patient that you just talked about. Well, thank you so much for a great discussion. This was very insightful. And I think if I was going to say that there was a take-home point I took today, it's the absolute importance of shared decision-making, both in the conception counseling throughout pregnancy, and then also in the more critical times when people are quite ill. The importance of a multidisciplinary team, and especially in patients who have both clinical and social complexity, which we do unfortunately see a fair amount of in this population. Anything else that you would want to emphasize as a take-home point from today? Yeah, safe and effective contraception. <laughs> this is something that not everyone feels comfortable talking about in the clinic, but every single cardiologist needs to be talking to women of reproductive age about contraception if she has any type of cardiac dysfunction. This could be coronary disease, a Marfan's patient who has an aortopathy, women who've had any degree of LV dysfunction, PA, pulmonary hypertension patients. These are all patients we need to be talking about in the cold light of day, not when she's pregnant, but just say, are you sexually active? What is your contraception? And safe and effective contraception for women at high risk include either surgical sterilization, an IUD, or an implant. Oral contraception, much less effective, and barrier methods are the most ineffective. So this has to be something we're all comfortable with saying. It's not impolite or rude to ask your patient, if you're a physician, to ask about um, what contraception she's using. So I, I, w I hope we, as cardiologists, as a group, get more fluent in this. And it may be that the current landscape of legislation may make us all become more fluent. Absolutely. Dr. Walsh, something that you said early on, I think, was really a, a take-off point for me as well, that normal is normal. And I think a lot of times we see that our women are it's close enough. Yeah. And they don't really get the aggressive, comprehensive therapy that they deserve and that will hopefully allow them to succeed and do well going forward. And so that was certainly a takeaway point that I took from that. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you for presenting two very interesting cases, Jenna. And thank you so much for your insight and uh, experience into these kind of complex cases. We definitely learned a lot and we appreciate both of your time and insight. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. 